So we come to chapter 7 then, and uh, feel free to grab a Bible. I think it's page 744. And you remember last, not last week, the week before, we had the story of Daniel in the, the lion's den, chapter 6. This is before that. Okay, so it's slightly out of order. It tells us in the first verse that this is back at the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. So obviously he had to be king before he could put Daniel in the lion's den. But I think the reason it's out of order is what the video showed us, that it's pairing it with chapter 2. So if you remember way, way back in chapter 2, that's where the king had this vision of the statue made of different metals. And what you get from that is this sense of progression of kingdoms. Now, it's, it's interesting, it's fascinating to get into the kingdoms and the order of them. And actually, as you go on in the book, the sequence becomes clearer. Chapter 8 becomes really overt, explaining who the next two are, uh, and so on. So there's a, a progression of kingdoms. But the important thing that we don't want to miss in chapter 2 is that once that statue is described, a rock that is not cut with human hands, I think that's the description, it comes down and it destroys the statue and it grows into this great mountain uh, that is a kingdom that fills the earth. So that sequence of these four kingdoms, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, that sequence is going to be repeated in chapter 7. Only this time, it's not the king who has the the vision, it's Daniel, and Daniel doesn't understand it, and he needs somebody else to explain it to him. So in the first eight verses, we get the description of the vision that he has. And it's really quite troubling. In fact, if you look down at verse 28, the very end of the chapter, uh, he gets to the end and he says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel... My thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So that's, if you like, the bottom line. Where this whole chapter goes, ultimately, is for Daniel to be really troubled. Okay, the the reason I'm saying that now is because I don't want to end the message with us feeling really troubled, uh, because there's something really hopeful in this for us as we conclude the series. But for Daniel, this was just the beginning that sparked more questions and more visions and more detail in the subsequent chapters. So the vision that he has in the first eight verses is really the stuff of nightmares. It begins with the winds coming from all directions and the waves getting kind of chopped up. And so the sea is like this raging kind of mess of of noise and aggression, which is a horrible image especially for Jews. They really didn't like the sea at all. And so the, the kind of the idea of all these waves blowing everywhere and then these beasts emerging from the water, it's the stuff of nightmares. And it begins with a lion with eagle's wings. And that lion with eagle's wings seems powerful and impressive, kind of the king of the jungle and the king of the air, seems to be really just overwhelmingly impressive and it ends in about verse 4 with the, um, the creature standing up on two legs and being given the heart of a man. You think a beast that becomes a man? It sounds like Daniel 4, doesn't it? it sounds like Nebuchadnezzar after becoming a beast uh, with his uh, boanthropy we talked about in chapter 4 where he's chewing on the grass and mooing like a cow. Eventually he's restored and he kind of rises back up as a human. And so that's a clue to make sure we get who that first beast is. 
Next beast, you've got a bear that's raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth. A little bit intimidating, I would imagine. And uh, all sorts of detail we could get into there. But that's the next kingdom empire that's coming in after the Babylonians. And then we've got the leopard with four wings. That's a real powerful image, isn't it? Of a stealthy, fast, conquering creature with four heads just in case you're not too scared of it yet. And the four heads, uh, when when we get to chapter 8, it becomes evident this is the Greek empire, which conquered super, super fast. Alexander, Alexander, not Alexandra, let's not make him a girl. Alexander the Great was an incredibly fast conqueror, basically took out the whole world that, that there was then at that point and ran out of things to conquer and fell on his bed weeping and all these things we hear from history. And then when he died, he had no sons. And so who does the kingdom go to? He said, give it to the strong. And the kingdom was divided between his four generals. And so we're getting ahead of ourselves because that's chapter eight, really. But, but this four-headed, very fast creature seems to be anticipating that. So you've got these three beasts, but then Daniel introduces the fourth one, and this is the one that totally overwhelms him. It's not described in animal terms, really. It's described almost like a machine, these kind of teeth and these claws and these horns, and it's just all hard, and it conquers and it destroys, and anything that's left, it stamps on. And you get this uh, sort of overpowering sense of, of fear, of, of just like, wow, that is, that's, that's frightening. Ten horns, no animal with ten horns, but there's ten horns that come out from it. And then this little horn that emerges gets rid of three horns and then it sort of zooms in. It's like the camera zooms in on that little horn and he's got human eyes and a big gobby mouth. All right, this little horn is horrible, just talking and and blaspheming and making all these kind of bold declarations and statements. And Daniel is obviously bothered by this. All right, this is like, uh, this is worse than, you know, when you do takeaway and then you struggle with sleep that night. I mean, this is a really troubling vision that he has. And so when you come down to verse uh, 15, Verse 15, he, he, he kind of describes that. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. And the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So this is an, an angel that he's speaking to. Uh, we're going to come back to the bit we've skipped, by the way. That's, that's a good bit. We'll see that soon. But he comes to this, this being and, and asks what's going on. And it says, he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So notice as soon as the the messenger is explaining it to him, there is immediate comfort. Okay, yeah, this is happening, four kings, but the saints are going to get the kingdom. The people of God are going to be in charge. And that just seems like a really bizarre statement, doesn't it? How is it that you're going to have these four great kings overpowering, destroying, just conquering, 
And yet, it's okay because the saints of the Most High, they're the ones that are going to rule. And so we've got this piece, if you like, a first piece of a puzzle that we're going to put together in a few minutes that we have. And the first piece is really number three. It's ultimately the saints, the people of God are going to reign over the kingdom. It's not going to be a beast. It's not going to be a Hitler or Pol Pot or an Idi Amin or a Saddam Hussein or anyone like that. It's going to be the saints, the people of God who are going to have the kingdom and they're going to have it forever. All of the other ones are finite. One is replaced by the other, replaced by the other, replaced by the other. And even the fourth one, in all of its terrifying power, ultimately is going to be defeated. And then he carries on, verse 18, sorry, 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. So that's the bit that's really bothering him. Understandably, that's the bit that I find a bit freaky too. So he's bothered by that, and he's like, okay, tell me about that. Explain that to me. And verse 21 is potentially extremely distressing for us. Okay, if we see what verse 21 says, it sort of jumps off the page after all that we've read in Daniel. As I looked, this horn, that's the the little leader guy, this horn made war with the saints. So he's attacking the saints. He's going after the people of God. And then the next four words, and prevailed over them. Now that's scary. Because think about it, so far in Daniel, Daniel has been in Babylon and he's had the kind of the the, the threat of Babylonian oppression and education and so on. And he's gone through the test of chapter one and survived and the the test of chapter two and survived. And then his friends have gone through the test of chapter three and miraculously survived in the fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar talks to him and he says some bold stuff in four and he survives. And then chapter five, Belshazzar has the, you know, the scary hand writing on the wall and he calls Daniel in and Daniel survives. And then in chapter six, there's the lion's den and Daniel's in there and there's like huge lions and they're scary and he survives. And so the pattern seems to be that God's people survive. And then you get to chapter seven, verse 21. And it says that this ultimate human beastly kingdom that claws and bites and devours and destroys that is utterly terrifying will target the saints and prevail over them. That's huge. And in fact, that's exactly what we've seen. As much as we think about the the survival of, of Daniel and his friends in the first six chapters, Church history tells us that's not normal. We don't know how many times people have been delivered, of course, because they don't always know it themselves. But what we do know is that there has been countless thousands, millions of people that haven't survived. I walked around Auschwitz a few years ago 
uh, just numb, trying to grasp the, the absolute evil of that place. You've got Auschwitz A, where you've got the famous sign, Arbeit macht frei, if you work, you're free, which is a total lie. And, and all of the kind of experimenting they did there to figure out how to kill people quicker. And then Auschwitz B, Birkenau, which is just this sprawling camp where the trains would come and the people would be led straight into a building. And in that building, they put their clothes on a hook, remember the number, you're going for a shower, and they never came out of there alive. It's absolutely horrifying. And in one of the buildings in Auschwitz, you walk in and they've got in just one room shoes. It, it just, it, it's probably the bit that I came closest to crying. I wanted to cry all day. But you come into this room and it's just shoes. It's, about, it's a room half the size of this. And it's a pile of shoes that goes to the ceiling. And you think, this, this many people? Like in, in how many years? And it was, no, this many people in a matter of days. And it went on for week after week, month after month, year after year. All those Jews, all those gypsies, all the people with any abnormality or defect or the wrong color eyes and, and whatever it was. And it's just overwhelming. And you think, well, how, could, how could that happen? And then you read this and you go, that's got to be something to do with this. That kind of utter devastation. And you could talk about... Cambodia, and you could talk about different places. You could talk about places in the world today. North Korea, where people, especially Christians, are taken off to work camps and are never seen again by their hundreds. It's happening right now. And the truth is that for many, maybe most, there isn't deliverance. It feels like that fourth beast is devouring, is waging war against the saints and is prevailing. Northern Nigeria, Syria, Iraq, there's so many places, Sudan, so many places we could talk about where to be a follower of Jesus is to put a target on your head. And so we sit here in our, our relative comfort and peace, and, and then we read Daniel, and I'm and, sure whether we look back into to history and we see how uh, the forces of evil have gone after people, especially those identified as God's people, whether it's the church or the Jews. You see it in the past. If you look across the planet, you see it in the present. As you're reading this, you get a sense, especially when you come to the New Testament, and all of this stuff is still anticipated, that actually there's still a lot to come. Remember, the sequence of kingdoms goes one, then two, then three, then four. Then God's kingdom is established. That hasn't happened yet. And therefore, we're still in that final phase. And so whether we look back or whether we look out globally or whether we look forward, our hearts should be troubled because the forces of evil wage war against the saints and far too often from our perspective, they prevail over them. That seems utterly terrifying, doesn't it? I mean, today we're at a time that we couldn't have imagined 20, 30 years ago where you wear a cross at work, you could lose your job. You offer to pray with someone, you could lose your job. How quickly is it going to get much worse than that? How quickly is it going to go to a whole new level that we're not quite uh, accustomed to in terms of where we are? We've got to be realistic, we're living in a world where there are forces of evil arrayed against God's people and he wants to take us out. The enemy wants to take us out 
And the fact is, the vast majority of the time, he prevails and it feels, from our perspective, like total disaster. Like God isn't there, like God's not answering the prayers, like there's no hope. But then you get verse 22. So 21 is true, but then the next verse says, until. And this is a really important word. You find it all the way through the prophets. Every time the prophets are looking at evil and looking at the bad stuff in the world, that you get this cry rising up within the prophet or within the people. How long, O Lord, is this going to carry on? And here we get one of those untils. And so he will prevail over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So there it is again. The saints are going to possess the kingdom. We're living in an evil time. Things are bad, and I think they're going to get a lot worse. But the end of the story is the saints will possess the kingdom. But there's a second piece of the puzzle here. The third piece, if you like, is that ultimately we get to rule and be with God in charge of the world. That's exciting compared to being under the Third Reich or whatever uh, the world has to offer. So that's the third phase. But the second piece is that judgment comes first. Before we can have the king, we're not going to kind of take it by force. We're not going to sort of get our act together and suddenly take over the planet. That's not the way it works. God is going to step in and he is going to judge which brings with it an implication that's only an implication in chapter 7. It becomes overt in chapter 12. And that is that what about all these people that have died? What about the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, the millions who have been killed, who've been exterminated, who've been cleansed or whatever labels put on it? What about all of them? What good is it for them now they're dead if God is going to come and judge and establish a kingdom What's implicit here is that they're going to be raised from the dead. That this life and this death is not the whole story. So that's going to become clear in chapter 12. But we want to bring it out now and say, you know what? Whatever we go through now, no matter how bad it gets, this is not the end of the story. This is only until the ancient of days comes and the kingdom is established. Those are parts two and three of the three-piece puzzle that we're looking at. But I want us to see part one, the, the, the one that should dominate our thoughts, the one that should change our perspective and change our reality. Let's go back to the middle of the chapter. Verse nine. Daniel says, verse nine, as I looked, so he's just had the dream. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat so this is God the father right this is the only time I think in the whole bible where there's any really definable vision of God the father I think you can chase that and what we're told about him is that his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool no face remember no one's ever seen the father's face so uh, but there's, there's description here that's speaking of purity, of perfection, of, of goodness. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. 
a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Fire, always a sort of a symbol of justice and judgment, sort of the purifying fire. And it's like, okay, Daniel sees God, and what he sees is just this overwhelmingly bright, just pouring forth perfect holy justice kind of a vision. All right? And all of that's coming out. And then he tries to put numbers on the other beings that are there. He says, a thousand thousands served him. I think he's just kind of going with the biggest numbers he's got. I don't think he's necessarily counting. But that's a million, okay? So we're talking big numbers here. Uh, Like a million angels. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Who are they? I think he's seeing the saints. I think he's seeing the people raised from the dead and stood before God. 10,000 times 10,000. That's like, what is that, 100 million? That's a lot of people. But maybe a fairly accurate number, as it turns out. And they're stood before him. They're not cowering. They're not hiding. They're not fleeing. They're there and they're safe. And it says the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So this is the God who is all-powerful, overwhelmingly in charge, incredibly, perfectly holy, absolutely trustworthy uh, in terms of the whole Bible, what we're seeing. But this image is not one you run from. And now the books are open. He's got all knowledge. He knows what people have done. He's got a complete record. And it says, verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Now that's amazing, isn't it? He gets this vision of heaven in all of the perfection and that gobby horn is going at it. It's talking, accusing, making comments, having a go, and he's there. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Look at verse 13. This is the bit we've got to see. I saw in the night visions. Here's the ultimate feature of his vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. When we think about coming judgment, and we think about coming kingdom, what we need to be thinking about is this one like a son of man, because he's the key to the whole thing. He's the one that is given the authority to rule over everything. Now, just think about how significant that is. Here we are in this world, and and maybe we're here in a labor camp, uh, starving to death and wondering if today will be our last. Maybe we're in that kind of horrific circumstance. We need to know who's going to judge this, that there's going to be judgment, and that that judgment can be trusted even though it's not yet Until that comes, that's where the hope is. That hope brings perspective and and, and encouragement for the present. 
Maybe we're not in a labor camp. Maybe we're involved in, I don't know, a, a fairly small new church. And we're plugging away in the kids' work. And it's hard work. It's just kind of tiring, to be honest. You know, it's not like a persecution issue. It's just kind of tiring. You know, it's just difficult. And, and it's tempting to just focus in on that and lose track of the fact that, you know what? This isn't the end. This is just part of the story. And, and in God's providence, here I am in this place at this time doing this relatively small thing. But it's part of this great big plan that God is working out. And I can have hope here right now preparing yet another lesson for Crash, because this is not the end of the story. This is until, until judgment, until kingdom is established, and that is going to happen when the Son of Man comes. Now, you see why the Son of Man is so significant? I love the fact that it doesn't just say God the ancient of days is holy and pure and and, and totally amazing. He's going to judge. It doesn't just say that. It says that the son of man is going to be given the authority. What that means is that one who is like us understands what it is to be hurt. He understands what it is to be mistreated. He understands what it is to be in in a human body with all of its frustrations and and temptations. He, He understands because that's where the story of Daniel points us to. Ultimately, is this one like a son of man who's coming to the earth from his perspective in six centuries time. From our perspective, 2,000 years ago. And Jesus became one of us and he experienced all that we experience, including unjust justice, including the injustice of false trials where there's a court that doesn't care about the truth. He, he was there 2,000 years ago, stood in, in, in the, the room with Caiaphas, the high priest, and all of the Sanhedrin, and they're trying to get two witnesses to agree so that they could put him to death. And one person would come forward, oh, I heard him say this. Great, that'll do it. Anyone else hear that? Well, no, I didn't hear that. Okay, anyone else? I saw him do this. Okay, that'll do. Yep, anyone else see that? Well, no, I didn't see that. Imagine Jesus just stood there like, what sort of a court is this? What sort of a trial is this? I am the son of man. I am going to judge the whole of everything. All judgment has been given into my hands, John chapter 5. And here he stands in front of people who can't even come up with something to do him for. Eventually, they found two witnesses that agreed that they had heard him say that he would uh, rebuild the temple in three days if it was destroyed. And, and they said, great, we've got something. And then the high priest turned to Jesus. And he said, you're standing there in silence. Come on, man, say something. And Jesus, just quiet. And then he said, I adjure you by the most high, by the living God. He put him under oath and forced him to speak. And what did Jesus say? He said, you're going to see one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. And he quotes Daniel 7, 13. Get in there, Jesus. He gives them what they wanted by, by saying, like, this, this is a farce. If you want to do me, do me for being the man in Daniel 7 because that's who I am. Don't you love that? I love that he kind of did their work for them. He knew how to get that trial complete. And they couldn't pull it together, try as they might. A few weeks later, a few weeks later, after Jesus had died and risen again and gone back to heaven and things were just starting to settle down, the Sanhedrin gathered again. 
because of Stephen. Stephen was bothering them. The way he was living his life was just grating and it was causing problems. And they accused him. They accused him of the same things they accused Jesus of. Things to do with the law and things to do with the temple. And Stephen in chapter 7 gives this incredible speech. Chapter 7 of Acts. Uh, It gives this incredible speech that just goes through the Old Testament and shows them how God had been at work everywhere except where they were stood. And how God doesn't get contained in, in temples made by human hands. And he just kind of points his finger and pokes them in the chest and he goes for it. And then when it gets to the end and they're so angry and they're so mad and they're just about to condemn him to death, he looks up. And God pulls back the scroll of the sky and gives him a glimpse of heaven. And what does he see? He sees one stood next to the throne, the Son of Man. He told him. He was like, so, what? I see. And he tells them what he sees and he quotes effectively Daniel 7. And they couldn't bear it anymore and they dragged him outside and they stoned him to death. And they achieved absolutely nothing because all that they could do was kill him. But there will be a judgment and a resurrection. And after the judgment, a kingdom. And Stephen is going to be one of those wearing a crown. You see, Stephen is is kind of a glimpse into why Daniel 7 matters to us. Whether we're in a labor camp or preparing for a a kids club lesson, whether we're in a a challenging spot at home or a really difficult situation where people are, you know, incredibly antagonistic, whether it's big or small, however it is, whatever life is like, if God would simply peel back the the skies, just, just kind of open the curtains and show us heaven we would see what we read here. That there is a throne and the one on the throne is still in charge and there is one next to him on a throne, either seated like Jesus quotes or standing like Stephen saw. There is one on the throne next to the throne and he is a human and that is Jesus. He is the son of man and to him will be given all dominion and all authority and all peoples and nations and languages will bow to him. And so here we are in the midst of our very normal lives, living, if you like, in this world, unaware of what's on the other side of that great curtain above us. And maybe God will give us a glimpse. Maybe he won't. Maybe all we'll see is the oppression and the the prevailing of the beast against us. Maybe we'll just suffer. Maybe we'll just live a normal life and it'll be fairly dull. Whatever it is, we may live this whole life as if this is it. And yet above us, there's a reality that Daniel 7 reveals. And maybe sometimes we don't see it, but we want to see it. We could turn back to Daniel 7 and say, Lord, let me just remind myself of what's true in the midst of evil, big and small, in the midst of struggle, big and small, in the midst of all the difficulties of life, big and small, let me just remind myself of the anchoring reality. Even though this world is evil, even though the news depresses me, even though the things that happen politically create fear in me, let me remind myself of reality. That ultimately, the saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever. That all of this happens only until the judgment that's to come. 
That all of this happens even if it takes our lives. When that judgment comes, there's also resurrection. There is hope and there's future for those of us that know and love God. And all of that is held in the hands of a man, not a beast. Not Adolf Hitler, not Pol Pot, not Idi Amin, not the people in Brussels or the people in Westminster or the people in Washington. It's held in the hands of one like a son of man standing next to the ancient of days. And all of that is to come. And where we are right now is this side of a curtain that if it were pulled back, we would see a throne. And we would see one next to that throne who is a man, a person like you and me, the son of man. And we get to worship him now. How cool is that? We, we get to, to do now what in the future will be global. We get to do it now in a small way. And so let's give thanks for, for that. Let's pray that God would give us that perspective, this side of the curtain. And as we move into a time of communion, let's remember who it is that ultimately has judgment, who it is that ultimately will be worshipped. It's not one that sits off aloof from us. It's one that came to where we are, suffered like we do, was tempted as we are, and he died in our place. So we look back to the cross and we look forward to the second coming of Christ. And Daniel gives us that glimpse of what's happening above us right now. Let's pray. and Thank God for what we have. And pray that he would give us the strength to go against the flow when, when the whole of society fights against him and against us. We can stand because of Jesus. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so, so much for this book, which, which is overwhelming in some ways and yet is such a powerful message for us. Lord, we pray that we as your people in this time would be people gripped by the reality of who you are. Lord, we pray that we would be gripped with an anticipation of eternity to come, all that lies in the future. I pray that we would be people who are gripped by the reality that justice will be served, that judgment will come, that evil ultimately will not prevail. And Lord, whether we have to go through intense suffering or whether we just go through yet another normal but challenging week, I pray that we would be people who know by faith as we look in your word that there is one stood next to that throne who's just like us, the son of man that we worship, the one who came to die in our place. And so, Lord, we pray that as we take the bread and, and the juice, if we're part of your family, as we take it, we, we pray that it would just be a, a reminder of what happened, but also a stirring of anticipation of what's to come and even, even a glimpse into the present reality of what's above us. Lord, please let us be people gripped by the reality of what's on the other side of what we can see. The throne and the Son of Man stood next to the Ancient of Days. We worship you, Lord. We thank you that this is not the end of the story for us and this is not the end of the story for our brothers and sisters in those camps in North Korea. We thank you that justice will be served. And we thank you for Jesus who came and took that justice on our behalf. Lord, we just want to say we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.